What's up? Welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. This podcast is meant to give you a personal glimpse into the next era of investors and operators. Huge thanks again to Greg for coming on last week, and we hope that each of you are able to pick up something valuable from this talk. If you're looking to link up with Greg, we've attached his social information within the description below, and you can also find his contact info within the Confluence VC directory. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Everybody, we got, uh, we've got a great guest on today. One that was actually recommended by a few different guests in the past is someone that'd be great to join us. So I just want to welcome welcome Greg from Struck in LA. Great dude. Works with our close friend Cole Moore at Struck as well. And uh, yeah, just thank you for being here, brother. Appreciate uh, you guys having me. Uh, lovely introduction there, Tyler. And uh, big fan of what you guys are, are doing over at Confluence. Excited to be a part of your journey and um, excited for the chat today, guys. For sure. Look, man, let's kick it off like we always do. In less than two minutes, you want to give us a quick blurb about your path and, and where you are today? Absolutely. Yeah, my path into venture, I think many others, is pretty non-traditional. I'm originally from the East Coast, born and raised in, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Went to college in Boston and then started my career actually while in college. I was really interested in kind of the startup community, understanding how you know startups grew and, and what that recipe of, of, for success really looked like. And so... My sophomore year of college, I actually started an internship at a startup. It was a buzzword. I'm dating myself a little bit, but back then, and I was really interested in really seeing the inner workings, thought I could learn more in an office than in a classroom. And so ended up getting an internship at a company called OneScreen. They're an online video ad network. I didn't realize how early they were when I joined. I was the, the second hire, so to speak, as an intern. They ended up scaling very quickly as an online video ad network. They definitely rode the growth tails of the rise in online video in 2008, 2009, 2010. And because of that, they had some hiring bottlenecks and asked me to come on full time. So I worked full time for one screen all the way through college. It took me about five years to graduate. So I did extend a year. The learning experience was incredibly invaluable. And my senior year, they actually went through an M&A process and were acquired by a public company called Adaptive. I was pretty involved in that M&A process. We had retained an investment bank to help advise us. And I was the point man internally on the diligence front, working hand in hand with that investment bank, formed a great relationship with them. About two months before graduation, the uh, acquisition got across the line. And the investment bank asked what I was doing after school. I wasn't joining the acquiring company. And so they offered me a role to come out to San Francisco and work for them. Right out of school, I went into tech investment banking. We were advising founders and CEOs on large capital raises and M&A transactions anywhere in 50 million to billion dollar deal value range. So really enjoyed my time there. I was there for about two and a half or three years. Eventually just got the itch to move back over to the product and ops side of things. And so I left the investment bank to join another early stage startup called Tamcord. We were a consumer mobile application. I joined as a biz dev and growth lead. Helped scale our platform to be quite large. Over 15 million monthly active users at our peak. 
we went on to raise $35 million in funding from you know, the likes of Andreessen Horowitz, Google Ventures, SV Angel, some pretty, some pretty big name investment firms on the cap table there. And we were eventually acquired by Lyft in 2017. And that's when I had an opportunity to take a step back. I had an opportunity to move over to Lyft and, and, and lead their platform partnerships team. Wasn't really interested in doing so. Was really looking back on my career and had a lot of very early stage company building experience and building said companies into successful exits. Had a lot of kind of financial engineering and, and transactional expertise from the banking gig and just thought the combination of those things translated really seamlessly to partnering with early stage founders, helping them find product market fit, establishing what those kind of downstream KPIs look like to go out and raise that, that, that rockstar series A round. And of course, helping with execution along the way. After the Lyft acquisition, found my way into Strut Capital and three and a half years later, the rest is history, still here. So that's uh, my background and, and, and how I eventually uh, got into the venture community. I got you. So we caught up recently and you were telling me about how you got set up at Strut. And I found it to be really interesting that you worked full time at your last role while also working full time at Strut mm-hmm. or in transition. Yep. What was that like for you? And do you recommend that as a means of people breaking into venture? Yeah, absolutely. As I'm sure both of them, a lot of the listeners here, breaking into venture capital isn't the easiest thing in the world. And after that acquisition, I was fortunate enough to have two startup exits under my belt, spent some time in investment banking. I did have the luxury to step back and, and, and really take my time entering the, the ecosystem. Right around the time of the Lyft acquisition, I, I was really hell-bent, so to speak, on, on joining the venture community, really just started networking with every contact I had, ended up getting introduced to, to Adam Strzok, the founder of Strzok Capital, and we immediately hit it off. He was in the early innings of his first fund, the launch of his first fund, and wasn't quite ready to bring someone on full-time, but he did like the way that I thought about the world and thought I could add some value. He took a chance on me, said, hey, we're not ready to bring someone on full-time, but why don't we start doing deals together? I'll give you an email address. You'll have the Strut Capital branding behind you. That'll help you get into events and meet people and meet founders, et cetera. And we'll bring you in on deals that, that we're working on, vice versa. And we'll just have the relationship organically manifest itself. And so that was my in with Strut. I started out as a consultant, intern, whatever you want to, whatever you want to, whatever taxonomy you want to use there. And we just started doing deals together. And that really kind of, so it gave me the, the pedestal, so to speak, to re- really enter the, the industry. And I ended up sourcing one of our largest companies out of Fund One, a company called Sendoso, about two months in. So I felt like you know, I, I really did quickly develop the eye for venture capital. At that point, they still weren't ready to bring me on full time. I think that it was clear that Fund Two, which, was a, which ended up being a much larger fund, was when that opportunity would arise. But I absolutely loved the gig and wanted to uh, continue doing it. So I stayed on with Struck. I actually, while doing that, went to some old investment banking colleagues that were spinning up their own bank and served as one of their founding vice presidents. So I was a, a full-time investment banker for about a year and a half, that first year and a half that I did join Struck and was doing investment banking by night and venture capital deals, I'm sorry, investment banking by day and venture capital deals by night. And that was kind of how I cut my teeth and I continued working hard. I didn't sleep for that year, but it ended up being a success and eventually Struck Capital went out for its fund too. They were ready to bring on that first investment team member. I was the first call and immediately transitioned into the full-time role. That was my pathway. I, I got a great piece of advice during um, that entire time period, which was your current job is your day job. 
your next job is your night job. And that really stuck with me. If it, it, when you set out to achieve a goal, there's really you know, no stopping until you do. And that was something I really took to heart. We've done it ever since I've come on board. We're struck capital with others that are looking to break into VC. Cole is a great example of that, who I know does a lot of work at, at Confluence with you guys. I think he's actually um, running three full-time jobs now. Uh, he's a <laughs> consultant with Infosys. He's an investor at Struck Capital, and uh, he's obviously doing some really great things with Confluence and his deal flow roundtable, which is really exciting. He's, he's been absolutely crushing it for us, and I'm absolutely confident that very shortly here, he'll find his way into a full-time role, hopefully with us. But if not, he'd be a, a huge asset to any venture team. Most definitely. Cole is a phenomenal human being. Um, it, he's almost beyond a human being. He's a superhuman. I thought that it was impressive what I was doing with two full-time jobs, but this guy really must not sleep. <laughs> taking a splash the way he's done in venture, like while also being a full-time consultant at a competitive place, that's crazy. But and, and that's but that being said, man, I would love to to dive a bit further into Struck and have you just tell us a bit about it and about the, the managing partners and then also what it means to be founded first capital because I know that's a big thing or a part of your ethos. Absolutely. I think to start t telling the Struck story, I think it makes sense to probably give you guys some background on the founder and managing partners history and how he found himself into venture capital because it's certainly kind of part of our DNA. So the founder of, of Struck Capital is Adam Struck. He's originally from Johannesburg, South Africa. He moved to Boca Raton, Florida when he was seven or eight years old. So did grow up in the States, went to Northwestern for undergrad, immediately went into law school at Georgetown after undergrad and started his career as an M&A attorney at Kirkland and Ellis in New York, excelled there, was there for a year, billed 3,000 hours in a year and said, this isn't for me. His older brother is a very, is very entrepreneurial, specifically in the kind of food and bev and CPG space. He was starting a new company at the time that Adam was transitioning out of Kirkland and Ellis called Long Island Brand Beverages. It was a ready-to-drink tea brand. And so Adam decided to join his brother and co-found Long Island Brand Beverages. They bootstrapped that and scaled it to about $30 million in top line in three years and ended up selling that to a middle market private equity fund called Colton Investments. That, comp that private equity fund has since combined Long Island Band Beverages with a handful of other assets and actually took it public on the NASDAQ. So that was a pretty big win for Adam pretty early on in his career. His brother, being a serial entrepreneur, decided to you know, go straight in from Long Island Brand Beverages into another business in the food and bev space called Hungry Root. They've since raised 50 or $60 million. They're like, you know, backed by the likes of Lightspeed, Lair, Crosslink. Adam said, big bro, we had our, we, we had our big win. I'm not so attracted to commoditized CPG offerings. I'm much more attracted to you know, recurring revenue, SaaS, 10x revenue, multiples, et cetera. And so he uh, decided to go the investing route, thought he had a lot of kind of operational legal expertise, and that would really be of value to, to young and early founders raising capital. And so by that point, he was pretty plugged into you know, the founder and investor community, especially in New York started getting great access to early stage deals, would meet with the founders, would really pitch the value he could bring to the table. It resonated and he started getting access to access and, and allocations into these early stage deals. He would aggressively structure special purpose vehicles, SPVs to get into those. And that was his way of developing a, a track record and building a reputation to be a fiduciary duty to eventual LPs. 
And so he did 18 of those in 12 months. There were some big wins in there like Nutanix, which has since IPO'd, Postmates, which you know last year was acquired by Uber. And eventually a lot of the, the folks that he was syndicating out these deals to were taking a pro- portfolio approach. He would send them four deals, they would do three of them, et cetera. And he, in 2017, felt like he could go out for a discretionary fund, targeted 25 million for Struck Capital Fund One, ended up raising 32 million. We've fully deployed that fund. That fund, we were mostly co-investing, kind of writing 500K to million dollar checks in the pre-seed and seed stage businesses. We did towards the you know, tail end of that fund's life cycle, start to lead some deals. And we're now investing out of our, our fund too. It's a $65 million vehicle. We're the fourth largest dedicated seed fund here in LA. And we're now exclusively leading rounds. So every deal coming out of the new funds, we're the lead investors. We'll co-lead as well in some instances, but typically leading rounds, writing the term sheets, pricing the companies, taking board seats, et cetera. And it's been a real pleasure seeing that transition from co-investing, being flexible to really being more thesis driven and really bearing the weight of all the post-investment value add as it relates to the rest of the cap table. So that's where we are from a vertical perspective and focus perspective. We're pretty generalist. We do have a handful of focus areas, those that being you know, anything B2B SaaS, fintech, marketplaces. And we've been really paying a lot of attention as well to the API economy as of recent. Gotcha, gotcha. And a- yeah, I know just tailing on the founder first capital piece, I know that's something we really like to promote. And I think the, the definition of that, at least that we view here at Struck Capital is, you know, really our capital is on the founder's terms, right? We're completely aligned with the founder goals and we're not trying to screw over founders with predatory terms and clauses. We really view ourselves as being supportive over the long haul. We have pro rata rates in 100% of, of the deals that we do now as a lead investor. We'll continue to support with capital as long as we structurally can, which is typically through the Series B would love to participate in bridge rounds, et cetera. And so that's, that's kind of how we view the definition of founder first capital. That's beautiful, man. That's beautiful. So I've heard you speak on kind of the state of the industry where a lot of folks aren't founder first, but more importantly, just aren't adding value to the C stage ecosystem as well as they could be. I think you all have taken this to the next level. Anything from the standard support to going the extra mile through productizing post-investment value add and, and thinking as much outside of the box as you can on that. You want to dive into kind of your opinion of where things are and, and how you all are changing and, and what it actually means to productize value add? Absolutely. And I really love that you're bringing this up, Tyler, because you know I think this piece of venture capital is often overlooked by the broader community. I think that when you look at successful companies, oftentimes the venture narrative there is we found this deal and we got in early. And oftentimes the blood, sweat, tears, grit, et cetera, that's poured in over the course of a business's life cycle really doesn't get the kind of limelight that it deserves. And so we really have taken a a really systematized approach to how we add value and kind of scale that across our portfolio. I think that our transition from fund one to fund two fund two being a lead only fund was really the catalyst for us rethinking, you know, how we add value in its entirety. We like to be incredibly hands-on with our founders and our teams. We typically have weekly scheduled full team touch points, daily touch points via text with our founders. We of course deferred to the, the preferred cadence of the founder and 
Sometimes founders within our portfolio are repeats. It's a third or fourth time around. And those founders typically, you know, do require less, less handholding, less touch points, et cetera, than a first time founder. But we really like to, you know, establish that communication cadence really early on. And unfortunately, I think that kind of the standard value creation for, you know, VCs today is really defined as showing up to quarterly board meetings, maybe having monthly check-ins, offering introductions to customers, advisors, potential hires, and then typically those asks, unfortunately, fall on deaf ears. We really take a, the opposite approach. We view ourselves as full-time employees of all of our companies within every department of their organizations. And when you have that approach as a venture firm, you really have to take a step back and understand what systems and processes can we institute to really standardize working with the portfolio and adding that value across the totality of the portfolio. Certainly things would uh, you know, get, get pretty hectic if there weren't systems and processes and you were having that type of hands-on approach. And that's been a big initiative of ours over the past, you know, call it 18 months. And I think for us, the process of, of adding value really starts pre-term sheet. I think that's another thing that is, is not quite normal within the venture community. We like to flex our value before having kind of skin in the game. Uh, a great example of that would be the first deal, actually, that we did out of this new fund, a company called Brainbase. It was a pretty competitive deal. They were sitting on multiple term sheets. And we ended up winning that, that deal as the lead investor because we walked them in to their largest investor, their largest customer at the time, which was a, a six-figure ACV pre-term sheet. We sit on a board with the, the, the CEO of that business. We looped him into this company. He absolutely loved it and fast-tracked them through a contracting process. And we got the, the contract signed before we ever had skin in the game. And that's something that we really like to flex. I think we really spend a lot of time, again, pre-term pre sheet, identifying the key risks during diligence and developing a solution roadmap to completely hit the ground running once we close that round. And so this can be anything from identifying technical debt, but maybe the company is building on monolithic architecture and the product really is much more appropriate for microservices. And so we'll identify that as a key risk and really you know, develop a game plan for that migration as soon as the round closes. We'll identify table stakes, key hires that we need to bring in post the round. And not only will we run that process on behalf of our portfolio companies, we'll organize the interview process and even interview candidates as well as do a selling job once once we've made an offer out. We'll re-engage hot pipeline prospects that might have gone dark. So then just really thinking outside of the box. And an instance of that is we led a seed round of a company called ScratchPay here in Los Angeles, their point of sale financing platform for veterinary care payments. It was a pretty competitive deal and we ended up winning it because given their financing platform in tandem with the equity round, they needed to spin up a credit facility to start lending. And we told the founder, hey, we'll lead your seed round in tandem with that, we'll also originate your first $25 million credit facility. And so what that did was it made it, made it possible for him to skip going your traditional debt route, speaking to the Silicon Valley banks, the credit suites of the world, et cetera. It would have been an extra six-month process in doing so. It would have delayed the go-to-market by six months. We had already completed the diligence. We were you know, comfortable with kind of the tape around the facility and ended up not only leading the round, but originating the $25 million credit facility. ScratchPay has since gone on to raise 60 or $70 million or a Series B business. And so that's, I think, the mindset we have. And I think we just really understand that a struck capital, we're truly service providers. Really, any venture capital firm is truly service providers offering commoditized capital. And when you pair that with the realization with the fact that you can truly have a causal effect on a company's success, that really changes the process, uh, the thought process around value creation. Got you, got you. 
Yeah, I think that's fire. Would, and, uh, would, love to, would love to hear your guys' thoughts, if any, around what is standard VC value creation. If you see that dynamic kind of changing across different profiles of firms, if you're seeing, just given how competitive markets have been these days, if you're seeing a venture firm's pre-term sheet or whatever it might be, really go an arm and a leg above as it relates to adding value, winning deals, setting our companies up for success. Yeah, I think right now there's a myriad of ways that you can add value, but I think the most standard ways that people do it is one, strategic insights. So actually knowing the company space and being able to think with them. Another will be bringing money in the door. At the end of the day, like business is business and the best in class investors will, if they're not helping you get the product to the point where you can help get more money in the door efficiently, they're literally handing you that. So they'll give you a large customer. They'll give you a B2B2B uh, partner, which would really change your, the trajectory of your business. And then outside of that, man, it's, it's like you said, being a service organization, whether that be introducing them to a PR person, whether that be listening to them when they're having like very tough times and they need to figure out how to get across the line as a human being. I think that you really just need to be in tune with your founders to the, the largest extent you can. Of course, understanding that you have a broader portfolio, but honestly, I've at this point seen so many ways that VCs help whether it be in the ways that I discussed or some firms who have very unique value propositions that it, it all comes down to just what can you provide uniquely and do better than anyone else, or at least when the founder needs it and being a good listener. Clay, what do you think? Yeah, I'd echo all that. I think it's become more and more competitive to actually add value after the check. I, I keep coming back to this quote from David Tisch at Box Group, a call to action for VCs saying, if you can't, if the only value add you have is offering warm intros to people, whether that's other sources of capital, potential customers, you name it, then you're not doing your job as a service provider. There's so many other ways to help these people be like, whatever you guys just said, as well as a hundred other ways, like whether it's listening to product recommendations, giving your own thoughts on it, giving thoughts on the roadmap, gathering user interviews, doing user interviews yourself. There's literally limitless options of how to help companies and just being available is probably the biggest thing that founders want is your attention as an investor and somebody that's actually going to back and support them on the cap table. That's my two cents. Yeah, I couldn't agree more guys. And you know, I think we've, we here at Shrek Capital have really tried to bring a lot of that in-house so we can productize it and, and automate all of those offerings across the portfolio. And I definitely think that the competitive dynamics are you know, almost forcing VC's hands to really rethink the entire infrastructure of how they add value. It's actually interesting. And, and the quote from David Tish reminded me of this. I saw a tweet recently from Gokul Rajaram from DoorDash, if you guys are familiar with him. And he had a, a tweet, something along the lines of that was messaged to founders. And his advice was for oversubscribed rounds, he was advising founders to reserve space for potential investors who send employee referrals. So an example of that would be 100K allocation for investors for each engineer, you know, product manager, designer that they refer. 
and that they end up hiring. And so I think the, the founders are starting to realize that, you know, the value add can be expressed pre-term sheet and they're even starting to bake it into their fundraising processes. So that's exciting to see. Yeah. I don't know if you guys saw that tweet, but I think it, I think it got a lot of attention on Twitter. Yeah, I think I know you're talking about. We've had a number of other people on and just ask more about the increased investment from funds into platform functions. Our guest last week, Eric Amatori at Alpaca, heads up their platform. She had a lot of interesting thoughts, and Mike McComey also has a lot of interesting thoughts on it. Just so mm-hmm. you're able to provide a lot more leverage without just throwing bodies at the problem. I think more and more funds are going to have to adopt that model if they're going to be in a position to actually deliver on some of their promises to these founders. I completely agree. And the head of platform was a new hire for us at Struck Capital for our second fund here. And it's been a complete game changer for us. He completely project manages all the value creation post-investment. He executes, he's, his name's Patrick LeHue. He was a former 10-year consultant at Deloitte. And I think that consultant eye is actually really valuable especially on the platform side, but I'm now thinking it's really valuable also on the deal team side. Now that I've got Cole working underneath me and he obviously (laughs) comes from a consultant background, they're just incredible at really developing systems and processes, which I think is absolutely critical as you start to scale. And we've really institutionalized the team to be able to, again, productize that, that value post investment. We've brought on, as I mentioned, a head of platform and we've brought on two other roles that I'm really excited about that have really moved the needle for us. You all brought on a CTO, no? And also like a a head of PR. Correct. Correct. So we have an in-house CTO as well as an in-house PR lead. Our in-house CTO is a guy named Michael Montero. He's a four-time co-founder and four-time CTO. All four successful exits. His two most recent were he was the CTO and co-founder of Resi, which I'm sure you guys have used to book uh, reservations or maybe not so much in the during the pandemic, but pre-pandemic. I'm sure you guys have, have used Resi. He sold that to American Express. Before that, he was the CTO and co-founder of CrowdTwist, sold that to Oracle. And uh, he's just been absolutely instrumental, really in all aspects of the firm, not only in on the deal side and kind of helping us in confirmatory diligence, really diving under the hood and, and, and doing deep dives into any company that we're looking at, their product, tech, architecture, et cetera. But he works hand in hand with our technical leaders within the portfolio. He has regular check-ins. Some are weekly, some are bi-weekly, some are monthly. He really helps to these early stage companies build out their entire engineering and product organizations, which are very you know, bespoke to different types of companies. Some companies can get to Series A with just senior software engineers. Others need SREs, data scientists, product managers, designers pretty early on in their life cycle. And uh, it really is a science kind of ratioing out the numbers of PMs you need to designers, the PMs to engineers ratio, how many directors you need to manage X amount of engineers, et cetera. He's also been absolutely instrumental in talent acquisition. We've brought on several engineers for early stage companies that are direct direct results of his network. And we'll, we'll get to this a little bit later perhaps, but he's actually even assisted us in building internal proprietary software to automate and scale the way that we had value specifically on uh, building top of funnel candidates for our portfolio companies, as well as building top of funnel business dev prospects. That's actually um, and then we've also brought in, yeah. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you, man, but that sounds really interesting. Can you give us a quick breakdown of, of what that is? And maybe from there, I want to make sure that we cover at least one of your investment topic areas or focus areas, because we talked about climate tech a few times ago when we spoke in. 
I thought that was really interesting. So you want to give us a quick breakdown of, of the tools, the specific tools you're talking about, and then we dive in the climate tech? Let's do it. Absolutely. Yeah, the internal software that we built, we initially built it for building top of funnel candidates for recruiting and hiring on behalf of our portfolio companies. What we found is that's probably the highest value, highest value ticket you can bring to the table as a venture investor in terms of value add after the seed round funding. A good chunk of that is going into bringing in employees. And oftentimes these are very key roles, senior roles within these businesses that can really transform the trajectory of their businesses. And we certainly have a very robust network. I think prior to this software, that was our methodology in building top of the funnel was diving into our own network, seeing who we know, who's available and, and making introductions. And you know, we were probably going from anywhere from 50 to 100 introductions a year to our portfolio companies in that method. We've now built software that can take any job description, use a little bit of machine learning and AI to match that job description to LinkedIn profiles. And from there, it'll actually automate our outreach to, it'll, it'll grab an email and automate outreach to those profiles that they surface. And then from there, we, the investors, actually engage that candidate. Sometimes a phone call is needed to describe the opportunity and the business and the long-term vision. Other times they completely understand it right off the bat and are excited about it. And so we can go back to our founders after we have interest and then opt in for a conversation, showing them the profile of, of candidate that is interested in the position that they're hiring for, and they've immediately opted into an introduction. And so most of the time we view these candidates as high quality, our founders do too, and an introduction is made. So we've now are, are, are churning out maybe 30 to 40 introductions a month for uh, candidates. And we're seeing about a 10% conversion rate into those introductions into a job offer. And so we've also partnered with dedicated recruiting firms in the past and, and have introduced our portfolio companies to those firms to help them hire. And we're seeing us actually outperform a lot of those recruiting agencies. And so it's been an absolute game changer for us. And we've since noticed that we can actually leverage that same technology and apply a different use case in, in building top of the funnel prospects for business development. Got it. That's amazing. Man. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's, let's quickly dive into, because uh, I know we don't have too much time. Let's quickly dive into your thoughts or trends in climate tech. Yeah. And then from we can there... Do Oh, go for it. What were you going to say? I was just going to say, I know that we've been jamming a lot on DCs. We talked about climate tech. We talked about future of work. I think climate tech is getting a lot of attention now. And so I think for the listeners, it might be, it might be a, a bit more interesting to dive into this pretty interesting thesis that we hear at, at Struck Capital Built as it relates to the future of work. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah, so that's the future of work. I think um, that overarching theme certainly has gotten a lot of interest. I think it's mostly focused on kind of collaboration tools in a sense. I think that when you think about video conferencing, people think that kind of market has matured, obviously, as it's been such a core component to all of our lives over the past several months here. Certainly virtual was the overarching theme of you know 2020. Zoom is now a verb, which is you know, often talked about as really being the holy grail of startups. We saw companies in 2020 like Hopin scale from zero to $150 million in funding and a $2.2 billion valuation in nine months. It's a really exciting yet crowded space that I think is about to hit this critical inflection point as we adjust to you know, a new post-pandemic normal. I, I truly believe that there's this race right now to version 2.0 of virtual events and virtual meetings. 
We've already started to see startups spin up and go after this opportunity. There's been several virtual meeting startups that you know, have really emerged as a result of the pandemic. And I think a lot of that is you know, spurred by consumer demand from all of us that are stuck at home. And it's obviously being fueled by venture capitalists that are eager to really capture a slice of this video conferencing market that I think right now is dominated by the likes of Zoom, Microsoft, and Google. Some examples of this are companies like GatherTown, Kumo Space, Pluto. All of these companies are incorporating spatial dynamics, meaning that users actually move around and interact with another on virtual maps. And I think the kind of the primary use case here is for office happy hours, hang out with friends in this new virtual world. There's others like TeamFlow and Brand that kind of replicate the physical office space just in a virtual manner. They're providing personal desks, common areas, private conference rooms. Even on TeamFlow, your video appears like a bubble in a virtual office plan, and you can move around the office by typing on your keyboard. And when you want to check in on coworkers, you just walk, quote unquote, up to them. And when you're going to the next meeting, you might bump into someone in a hallway and the audio is completely moved to that movement. So as you start moving away from others, the audio from their conversation starts to fade out. And then on the other side, you have folks like Hop In, Run the World. Those ones have really focused on corporate and academic kind of conferences and you know, really built the platforms with functionality that caters to large scale virtual events versus these intimate virtual meetings. I think you know, Zoom obviously also really came into the spotlight as a leading provider for intimate virtual meetings over the past year. But these companies actually predate the pandemic. And in my opinion, they aren't structurally set up in a way to capture virtual being a core component of corporate you know, communication forever. And so to yeah. be honest, where I think the biggest opportunity you know, lies in this race for virtual 2.0 is not in the actual innovation of the attendee experience through a feature set perspective, like spatial platform, you know, like the spatial platform momentum that we've seen of late, but rather, I think it's actually in the literal distribution mechanism of video conferencing. Every solution in the space right now, all hundred names that, that you would dive into, they're all currently hosted via a third-party platform. And I think this is subtly the biggest pain point for users and customers. Every event I've attended, and I'm sure it's the same for the two of you, I'd love to, to hear your thoughts on this, has it not been you know, hosted on either a separate third-party platform like Zoom, where you actually have to download a separate application, or in a third-party you know, browser web-based property like a Google Meets? Has that been your guys' experience over this past year? All of it is these third-party applications, right? 100%. And so I, I really view that as a pretty subpar attendee experience. And in my opinion, it really dilutes the host company's brand. And so as a corporate customer of these platforms, when I'm using them, I really lose control of the experience. I lose control of my branding especially for large scale events, which we're pouring hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars into, depending on the size of, 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 of who's throwing that event. And on the flip side, for smaller internal meetings amongst employees, there's no direction from the top, from the C-suite, around what platforms employees can or should use. And without that direction, there's all types of, of implications, security implications, again, maintaining that, that brand equity, et cetera. And so where do I see the white space for video conferencing 2.0? It's really giving control of all virtual communications and, and, and events to that end customer, to the host. Why can't companies literally embed the likes of Zoom, Hopin, really any, any video conferencing tool 
directly within their own ecosystems, whether it be a new tab on their website that's exclusively dedicated to virtual programming, on their internal and secure employee intranets for virtual CEO town halls, sales kickoffs, weekly stand, weekly team standups, et cetera. The value proposition of that compared to disjointed third-party platforms seems incredibly immense. You can even wrap some of the new kind of spatial virtual innovation into an embedded an, an embeddable solution as well. And so it feels like this new distribution mechanism is really the perfect medium for what becomes the new normal. And that distribution mechanism being embedding all of this functionality in whatever ecosystem the customer desires. And you know, I don't think it's over-indexing on companies going completely virtual forever. I think it's also providing a much better user and customer experience than today's most popular third-party solutions. And it's really hard to do. So that's why I'm really interested there. You have to build the video technology completely from the ground up. You're programming on WebRTC or OpenRTC. You have to build the extra functionality that's wrapped around the core conferencing tool to be completely out of the box, installed and embeddable in a matter of minutes. And so I'm, that's a space I'm really interested in and, and is a place I've spent a lot of time in recently. Yeah, one thing, we just had our buddy Jay Drain from Maven, who was the first track ever into, into Zoom. It actually literally named Zoom. One thing that you should look out for is uh, a lot of the larger platforms launching ecosystems very similar to a Shopify app store, but a Zoom app store, and then opening up their infrastructure to the types of, types of use cases that you spoke on. I think that there will be a myriad of companies that's built on top of improving the experiences or creating virtual worlds on top of Zoom and things of that nature. Just based on some of the insights that they shared, I guess when, you, when you're going out to, to find your next batch of companies to invest in, that's something you should keep your eye on if you already have it. But with that being said, man, we, we're trying to incorporate a moment where we take a little mental breather. So take this time to ask us anything you might want to ask us, and then from there we'll dive into our quick fire round. Absolutely. Appreciate the mental breather. I think we can all use more of that these days. Would love to, Clay and Tyler, hear your thoughts. What areas are, are you guys most interested in? Any kind of key theses that you're really excited about and you see some greenfield opportunity in? Clay, I'll let you take over for that one. Yeah, for sure. I have two that I've kind of penciled and I'm trying to better synthesize my thoughts on it. But in short, I think both the creator economy and community-like growth are really personally interesting. I mean, I also think they're going to be huge growth areas where there's a lot of opportunities to make money. For the creator economy, and you see these stats floated around where, it depends on who you ask, but 50-ish percent of kids under 12 would rather be a YouTube influencer than a professional athlete. That's that sticks with me because it just seems so taboo. And personally, I'd Now adding that. Now add in Robin Hood Trader to uh, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> to, 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 to that answer yeah I, I think that but yeah it just seems so taboo because like when I was that age that just wasn't on my radar I would much rather pursue a career in sports like making money playing sports professionally seems awesome but I think the demographic has shifted a lot of kids would rather create online and figure out a way to a build an audience b continually capture attention from that audience and c find a way to monetize on top of it. So there's a lot of software tools being built that you guys are both really aware of that are making that whole process full stack easier. The other area that I think is really interesting is just community-led growth. The topic of community has become more and more of a hot button topic for a lot of people. And a lot of people just kind of throw the 
the term around now. But I think Tyler and I both have some experience building this out and we've been played around with what works and what hasn't. And I think we both are just personally interested in, in the category as a whole. And we've also seen how valuable it can become rather than having organizations just act as a distributor of products or services to a wide range of customers. I think there's a lot of value in better connecting that customer base and outsourcing some functions of the organization to the community, whether that's asking for better feedback on the product roadmap, asking on better questions to ease new users on board to it. You can see how like onboarding that to a community rather than throwing bodies at the problem makes a lot of sense for businesses. I do think it's going to be really hard to reverse engineer a community. So if you aren't building with that mindset to begin with, it's a lot harder to create a community after you've already kind of established a business. I think a lot more people are going to take the mindset of, of building a community and then building a business around that. Personal thesis, again, like I don't really know what I'm talking about, but I think both of those are, are interesting and stuff that I'm at least keeping an eye out for. If it's any consolation, I think you know exactly what you're talking about. I, I, I agree with a lot of your points, and especially on the creator economy side, just being in LA during the rise of, of creator economy and, and all the tools that are serving creators has been uh, a, a really cool experience. We, I think LA has become a, a hotbed for that you know, that sector specifically, among many others, I think we're starting to see great fintech, B2B SaaS. LA, I don't think is, is uh, historically has had a reputation for gaming verticals, entertainment tech, consumer tech, et cetera. But I think we're starting to see enterprise technology with the trend of the consumerization of the enterprise really lend itself well to LA. So that's been exciting to be a part of. My my last question for you guys is just would love to hear your thoughts on the current state of, you know, the early stage investing market. I don't know if you guys are seeing the same, but on my side, I haven't seen a, a market this, thro- this, this frothy maybe in my investing career. Not only are there really high quality deals out there, we're juggling dozens of them at any given time. So volume has certainly ticked up but these deals are moving faster than ever. And so we've certainly had to adapt a lot of our diligence process to be able to accommodate this new kind of market dynamic. Are you guys seeing the same thing? Yeah, yeah, I I guess I could take over on this one. I think the venture capital space is as crowded as it's ever been. And that being said, that creates a, a shift in supply and demand dynamics. But then you also see a lessening of the barriers to entry of creation in regards to creating startups. You also see like an influx of volume. So I think we today is the earlier stages, especially myriad of noise generating startups that come in every single day, but also this fear that there's an infinite amount of competing capital for opportunity. So if you could get through the noise, in the time it takes you to also compete is pretty rigorous. So what I've been spending a lot of my time thinking about, uh, and actually me and Clay shot some texts back and forth, and we're effectively building confluence under this thought process. It's just like, how exactly do you do that at scale? Because at the end of the day, you either become a vertical specific thesis-driven outbound investor, or you play portfolio theory, or you have a brand that's so great 
that you get some preferential treatment and your funnel filtration or, or funnel input is such a high quality that you're fine. And I think that if you're not a pre-established player or a pre-established player with defensibility, then you have to figure out a way to do this. And I think that uh, just to play on, play on Clay's thoughts surrounding community-driven sourcing or execution or due diligence, that's something that we think about a ton. And also like aggregation theory of like, who exactly are you trying to aggregate here? In venture, you can either get founder relationships where they're pushing you companies, or you can get investor relationships where you get into the right circles and they're pushing you companies. And then beyond that, a lot of folks are trying to figure out tech plays or large platform partnership plays. And, and our thesis is that you have to choose one and own it well. And my thesis as pertaining to Confluence, and I'm sure this is echoed by Clay, is if you can own the data in the goodwill of the investment community and have an efficient mechanism of investing on top of that, and pulling out what you need, then you find yourself in a really interesting position for you to filter through the noise. At that point, it comes down to, can you compete to win? And that's where the com community component becomes your real only defensible mechanism of success because if you're dependent on brand of an individual, that leaves in that, that individual. Mm -hmm. If you're dependent on the brand of the firm that holds, you have to continue to maintain that brand, which is risky. If you're depending on a community, it can grow itself, sustain itself, and add collective value. So our thought is that the same way you're seeing these new CPG brands that are popping up where they build an amazing community, whether that be a celebrity or that be companies like, like August that are popping up, which is a community that supports women's health needs and they create like a thriving community of women supporting one another and do their sell products directly to them based on the feedback of their needs within that community. And then their, their product is not, they're just feeding the needs of those people. The same thing is having an adventure. For us, we're like, what does our community need? They want a Slack group where it's easy to connect, but like in a data-driven methodology with no barrier to entry after you pre-vet pre investors. They want junior investors to be able to get economics. They want junior investors to be able to get highlighted versus just their partners being highlighted. They want a safe place for them to get advice and, and get insights and a place for them to get education that they know is fresh. So like for, for us, it's yep. a simple, if you want to win, pick your poison. Some people go do that with founders like First Mark Capital and the program that they're running. Same with, same with First Round, ironically. And others, like point seventy two, they'll do that by owning the financial institutions, and they'll go effectively be venture consultants in terms of strategic thought alignment and introductions to the solutions that solve their problems that they can't build internally. And for us, like I said, we're just figuring that out for the investor base. I think that's truly compete. I absolutely love that that outlook, Tyler, and I couldn't agree more. And. I really like that you, you know, connected what Clay was talking about earlier when we were discussing the different kind of vertical theses, talking about community-led growth through the lens of startups. I absolutely think that it can be applied to us on the other side of the deal table as venture firms. You're talking about ways to source deals and brand is certainly one of those. And we often talk about as venture capitalists wanting to back, you know, core technology innovation, support core technology innovation. But we ourselves 
haven't changed in 10 years. And so I think building a community to really increase brand equity is certainly you know, a way to innovate. We agree with that there. We've done it ourselves, infusing core technology innovation into our own firm. And I really do think that's the direction the industry is headed. 100%. It's, we're one of the last legacy businesses. We'll, uh, we'll see what happens. <laughs> it's ironic, right? Because we're legacy, <laughs> but we really pride ourselves on backing you know, the next generation of technologies that are going to you know, effectuate change across the globe. But we haven't changed ourselves. It's time to wake up. Yep. Yeah, the way I'm looking at it is I listen to the older generation in regards to how to add value to founders and how to make investment decisions. But I do not listen to them in regards to how to innovate upon the business. <laughs> It's very similar to real estate, uh, and I'll just leave it at that. But, yo, we're running out of time, actually. So, Clay, we have a fintech meetup with all of the Confluence fintech folks coming in about 10 minutes. And this has been a phenomenal conversation. But I think we should, I think you should kick off the quick round with Greg so we can get through this and make sure that he gives everyone the gems. Because uh, I think Greg will have a lot of fire gems given that. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, let's do it. And then we can hop off and I think maybe we'll see Greg on that call as well. Yeah, cool. So Greg, we do these at the end. We have five questions, each meant to be answered in two sentences or less. First one we have is what is a recommendation you hear regularly that you think is bad advice? Ooh, two, sentence, two sentences or less, guys. I'll try my best here, but I can't guarantee it. What is a rec recommendation you hear regularly that you think is bad advice? This one is for both actually founders and investors. It's when, when you're thinking about raising seed, stat, you know, seed stage funding, under, under, you know, the, the common knowledge is understand the amount you have to raise to get to your series A. And that's almost always, okay, I'm going to get to my series A in 18 months. How much money do I need to bring in? That'll give me 18 months runway. And I think that's completely backwards. You should be backing into the amount to raise for your seed round. What KPIs do I need to hit to go out and raise a series A? How do I go out and execute to hit those KPIs? And this is how much capital I need that will take me there. I think it's very great. I know a founder is very seasoned when the messaging is $2 million will get us to X, Y, and Z KPI, not $2 million will get us to 18 months of runway, which is when we'll go out and raise our series A. Love it. I think that makes a ton of sense. Jumping to the next one just because we're short. Uh, in the last year, what new belief, behavior, habit has most improved your life? Uh, this is going to be hilarious. I'm not sure if you guys have ever gotten this one on the podcast, but new behavior is playing and cuddling with my puppy <laughs> that I got during the pandemic. It has completely changed my life. She brings a, 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 a light into what has been a pretty static daily routine so far. And oddly has materially improved my sleep. Puppies, I think, notorious are notorious for interrupting sleep. She completely passes out and I just grab her and I'm out in about two minutes. So my sleep has improved with a puppy, contrary to popular belief. Love it. That is that's a first. We get a lot of like mental health stuff it's like, yeah, I go on walks, I meditate, I do this all. Like, I mean, we've not heard cuddling with a puppy, so that's a first. All right, next one. Aside from having to say no all the time, what's the worst part about venture? I think the industry preaches, VC firms preach that they're collaborative and enjoy working with other firms. Unfortunately, I don't think that's the common kind of case, but I wish it was. 
I think it's my firm belief that if everyone shares everything in their funnel, regardless of where they are, regardless of how serious they are about doing a deal, the net is everyone's going to get as much information as possible, which gives you the best, the most information to, to underwrite a, a decision. And so I think that if everyone were just more transparent, I truly believe it's a net positive for everyone involved. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. All right, two more here. So best piece of advice for junior VCs or those aspiring to break into venture? This one's easy. And I think I mentioned it earlier in the, in the podcast here. Your current job is your day job. Your night job is your next job. Done. Love it. Yeah, that's a really good gem. I'm going to make sure to include that one. All right, last one. Who's a mentor that you would want to give credit to right now? Oh, this is tough. Can I give two? Yeah, yeah, yeah. First and foremost, Adam Strzok. I've worked side by side with him for the past three and a half years. He took me under his wing. He put me in a position to succeed. I've risen through the firm and I've really just enjoyed working alongside him. And I think the biggest takeaway that I've had from Adam is just the work ethic. The guy is an absolute animal. He does not sleep. And when you have the founder and managing partner of a firm, really taking that mentality it seeps through to everyone else that's along for the ride. And so everyone is united at the firm. We're all working towards a common goal. And I've truly never been part of an organization that has that dynamic in and out. And so Adam has been an, an, an incredible mentor to me, not only in venture, but the guy for, for being in his early 30s has a lot of life wisdom and has helped me through uh, every up and down you can imagine. So Adam is, is definitely one I'd like to highlight. The second one is Miles Bird. Do you guys know Miles? Uh, yeah, he, he's in Confluence. Awesome. Awesome. So yeah, he is actually the first kind of VC I met when I was trying to break into the industry. He was uh, former Correlation, former Tuesday Capital. Now I think he's working on his own fund. But when I was trying to break into VC, I probably sent, sent 50 cold emails to venture investors. I got two responses. Miles was one of them. The other response was, sorry, I don't have time to connect. Miles was also somewhat similar, but he sent me this incredible kind of list of links of resources of how to break into venture. I followed up with him, just really thanking him, saying this is really helpful. Still was in his ear about getting on a call. He reluctantly decided to, to get on a call. We ended up talking for two hours. He introduced me to Adam Strzok and has just been, is one of the most genuine, humble human beings that also happens to be one of the best investors I've come across. And he's just really, really mentored me into really taking that approach for others trying to break in. And oddly enough, Miles also was the one that connected Cole, our analyst working underneath me, to help him break into VC, into Struck Capital. So the guy is just an absolute legend, is one of the most humble and genuine human beings I know. And when you can match that to really having a, a VCI, that's, 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 those are rare characteristics to own. Yeah. That's great, man. That's awesome. Yeah. 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 Shout out Miles. Um, I think that's all we got, man. I think this has been awesome. We've got a ton of gems. I don't even think we're going to need to edit out that much. I feel like this, this flowed pretty smoothly. Absolutely. Fellas really appreciate the time here. Congratulations on, on all the momentum you guys had over recent, really impressed with what you guys are doing. We're along for the ride here and want to support in every way, shape, and form. Thanks again for having me on. Love the chat and hope to do it again sometime soon. Yeah. Well, man, let's talk soon. And thanks again so much for coming on. It's been awesome. Tyler Clay, thanks so much, guys. Bye-bye.
This week we had on Greg Stoffman with Struck Capital. Struck is an industry agnostic seed fund based in Santa Monica that aims to partner with founders tackling the world's largest problems. Greg was the first full-time investment team member at Struck, and he has now been with the firm for over three years. In this talk, we discuss moonlining to find your next role, VCs competing as service providers, hiring in-house talent to support portfolio companies, and opportunity areas within climate tech and the future of work. For next steps, if you're an investor and have not already signed up to join, we encourage you to check out our website at www.confluence.vc to submit your info to become a member. If you have any feedback for us, please feel free to reach out directly either to Tyler at tyler at gpv.com or myself at clay at Hope to hear from you all soon.